This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 2nd of July 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, the political journalist and author Terry Stiastany will join me in the studio to review the day's newspapers. And then Denmark's foreign minister tells us all about the NATO summit in Madrid. We're celebrating free speech, democracy and so on. And at the same time, only 40 kilometers away, you had a Russian military vehicle violating our territorial waters. In that sense, it shows what Russia is under Putin, autocratic, non-democratic, uh, violent uh, threat to our security. And then Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, brings us his weekly column. As the dog and I slipped off into the evening, I couldn't help thinking that just one person with the confidence to say hello, be willing to get involved with what happens outside their front door, can be what's really needed to make a place a community. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. Powerful explosions rocked the Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv early this morning, the mayor said a day after authorities said at least 21 people were killed when Russian missiles struck an apartment building near the Black Sea port of Odessa. Protesters broke into Libya's parliament in Tobruk last night and set a fire in front of the building to express their anger towards Libya's warring political parties. Security forces protecting the parliament withdrew from the site. Sudanese security forces fired tear gas at protesters on Friday near the presidential palace in Khartoum, a day after nine people were reported killed during the largest anti-military rallies for months. Protest groups demanding a return to democratic rule have said they will organise an open-ended campaign of sit-ins and other peaceful actions in response to the deaths. And the German city of Hamburg will ration hot water for private households and limit the maximum heating temperature in the event of an acute gas shortage, its environmental senator said, as Germany braces for possible outages of Russian gas imports. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, we're going to have a look at today's papers now. And joining me is the political journalist and author, Terry Stiastany. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Uh, NATO, of course, is across all of the front pages. It was uh, billed as the most important summit of a generation. Uh, and the FT's headline is NATO's brittle show of unity. What do they say about it? Well, yes, there's a lot of the coverage is now looking back at, you know, what was achieved um, at this big summit. And uh, the FT's uh, big read here is really saying that although everyone was, all the leaders were saying, this was a historic summit. It was unprecedented for Europe since the Second World War that there was this great sort of uh, show of unity and, you know, big sort of big sort of loving. Um, but it's saying that kind of beneath the surface, this is actually, things are actually rather more difficult. Um, and so they're pointing to this in... There's obviously the whole, what they call the return of Cold War rhetoric and alliance of values standing opposed to Moscow and Beijing in a world... Uh, riven by strategic competition, masked growing differences about how to endure the rising economic costs of the war in Ukraine. Um, and then when they look further into this article, some of these issues arise. In, in particular, um, we just heard there in the news about... Uh, 
energy, uh, Germany's concerns about getting energy from Russia. Um, and they are really they're really concerned here about, you know, the rising oil prices and the impact that that is having on the world's economy. Um, and the article even points out that, you know, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, had to leave the NATO summit on Wednesday, a day early for a crisis cabinet meeting. And the Italian, uh, the Italy's paying the highest borrowing costs on its debts uh, since since the Eurozone crisis. So, you know, there's this, you know, on, on one level, it was a great success. They were all getting on, you know, pretty well. On another level, there are lots of other difficulties, you know, beneath the surface. Absolutely. Yeah, and here's an interesting line, which I this is something I had missed uh, in in the coverage. Um, you know, we were all hearing before the beginning of the summit that Turkey had dropped its objections to Sweden and and Finland joining NATO. Uh, but then apparently, uh, Turkey's president Erdogan uh, used his final press conference to restate his potential veto on Sweden joining the alliance and going back on what he'd said before the beginning of the summit. But apparently, according to the FT, this had come so late um, that the Swedish delegation was already mid-air on its way back to Stockholm from Madrid. So they didn't actually hear this, this sort of semi, semi-backtrack. So again, this is another example of uh, it, it's all looking great. We've got a great agreement. And then, you know, towards the end, these things start to, to all get unpicked again. Well, we've got an interview that actually picks up on that. Uh, as Sweden and Finland edge closer to joining NATO, or not, uh, Denmark's also taken a significant recent step towards closer integration into Europe's security architecture. In a referendum on June the 1st, Danes voted by a huge margin to end Denmark's long-standing opt-out from EU security and defence policies and has since been subject to provocations by Russian warships sailing into Danish waters. At the NATO summit in Madrid, Monocle contributing editor Andrew Muller sat down with Denmark's foreign minister, Jeppe Kofud. Andrew began by asking what foreign ministers do in preparation for a NATO summit. There are still things to be done, but you're, you're correct. A lot of the preparation is uh, fundamental for the uh, success of a, of a summit. Although, you know, especially the, the kind of the, the talks between uh, Finland, Sweden and Turkey on, um, you know, on their memorandum was very important because uh, it will, you know, pave the way for their application as NATO members. So this summit is, I think, also with that in mind, very different. I mean, that's obviously a big moment for Denmark as well, but are you able to quantify what difference it makes to Denmark's security within NATO? Yeah, well, first of all, it's uh, two modern, advanced uh, countries, Finland and Sweden, with, with you know, a very modern, capable uh, military that is joining NATO. But it's also, um, so, so just on that, they, they are then providing security for the whole of NATO. So NATO becoming 32 countries with these two will um, increase the weight of NATO uh, in Europe and globally. But secondly, they are also Nordic countries which share the same societal model, the same values uh, like we do in Denmark. Uh, so strengthening, I would say, NATO as an alliance of, um, of values as well, uh, democratic values. So in that respect, it also brings a very strong perspective on a more political NATO that is also reflected in the strategical concept that we uh, have adopted. If you go back maybe a year ago, before the Russian invasion, before Russia even began its build-up along the borders with Ukraine, had there been any conversation at all between the two Nordic NATO, or the three, I guess, Nordic NATO states, if we count Denmark, Norway and Iceland, and the other two? Had, had there been any amount of you saying, guys, come on, join us, join us? 
it's no secret uh, when NATO was founded back in in forty nine. Mm. Uh, at that time, in the late 40s, there was, you know, discussion whether to create a, a Nordic kind of uh, organization or unity around defense. But uh, eventually, uh, you know, Finland and Sweden they became non-aligned countries, and and Norway, Denmark, and Iceland joined uh, the foundation of NATO. So, so we were split at the time, but there was this idea, and 70 plus years later, it's kind of fantastic that now we have actually Nordic unity within NATO. And also, if you look at EU, on top of that, we abolished in Denmark our defense opt-out the 1st of June. So we can take fully part in EU uh, defense and security policy, which all Nordic also can, also the ones who are not member of the EU, actually. And Norway is doing that uh, uh, as we speak. So, so, so suddenly, the five Nordics are not only both in all in NATO, but they're also in, in Europe. And we can, in a way, enhance our um, security and defense integration, defense planning, for example, which is beneficial to all of our security in the region. Well, that does tee up something I wanted to ask about, because it, it does, or it has occasionally seemed to me, at least over the last few months, that the invasion of Ukraine has clarified things among European publics almost faster than it has clarified them among Europe's governments. Well, we've spoken certainly to observers of Germany who were astonished by how popular Olaf Scholz's proposed increase in defence spending was uh, for Germany. People really thought he would have to sell that to the German people, but the reaction was more like, what have we been waiting for? And I think the same has been true with public attitudes in Sweden and Finland towards NATO membership. And I wanted to ask you something similar about the referendum on Denmark joining the EU's common defence policy. 67% in favour on a pretty decent turnout is a, a thumping majority in favour. Did you Was that strictly, do you think, a response to the invasion of Ukraine or do you think perhaps the Danish government had been behind where the Danish public had already got to on this? No, I think of course uh, Putin's actions in, in the war in Ukraine is uh, I think a very fundamental reason why Danes voted yes in big numbers because we have to stand together with our neighbours basically on security. So, so that is I think the one thing but I think secondly we also I think many people, many countries also in Europe have in a way taken something for granted that the rule-based order is there to protect us, uh, small nations or that um, there's respect of our democracies uh, and not attack on our democracies and so on. I think in that sense it was a wake-up call what happened uh, with Ukraine uh, to scale with the invasion and that, that has put in Denmark at least a debate that we need to invest more in our security not because we are a militant nation we are the opposite but sometimes you need to invest a lot more in military equipment in deterrence uh, of uh, people who threaten you in order to keep the peace and that is i think what people realized when we voted are you expecting more provocations from Russia at the very least? I know there was a thing last week where you summoned Russia's ambassador to Denmark over a Russian warship poking around in Danish waters. Is there, is there likely to be much more of that kind of thing, do you think? We have seen uh, in recent years more of that violations uh, in the air with Russian military aircrafts, uh, now with a, a warship. At the same time, very close nearby where we had uh, the annual democratic festival in Denmark uh, more than 35,000 people attending you know festival of democracies all political parties we were celebrating 
free speech, democracy, and so on. And at the same time, only 40 kilometers away, you had a Russian military vehicle violating our territorial waters. In that sense, it shows what Russia is under Putin, autocratic, non-democratic, uh, violent uh, threat to our security in Europe. And we, on the same side, uh, on the other side, we are celebrating our democratic values. We, we, I think we need to understand that we are in this type of world and therefore we need to come together much more. And in that sense, when Finland and Sweden joins, you'll have in the Baltic Sea region, in the Nordic region, a situation where all are members of NATO, except Russia. And that means that we have more security for all of us. I, I did want to ask about that summoning in particular. What actually goes on? What was the conversation like? Did you make a point of not offering biscuits? Uh, what, what happened? Well, he can have coffee and biscuits uh, as long as he conveyed the message back to Moscow that this is totally unacceptable to violate a territory of, of Denmark and, and also come up with explanations on that. So what I do, I, I ask my one of my political directors to take this talk with him uh, and he listened and he also promised to come back with an explanation uh, and he also denied there was any violation but we have and he also asked about the coordinates and we will provide the coordinates to him the documentation so they can look at it in, in Russia we know that for Russia it's a game they are violating all type of rules they are violating UN Charter by invading Ukraine so we, we are used to that type of provocation but we react sharply every time because it's unacceptable there has been a lot of talk this uh, week about you know the idea that NATO is is revived, that it, it has found a sense of purpose uh, that it perhaps had been lacking in recent years, if in obviously regrettable circumstances. Is, is that your sense of it, or are there still divisions among the NATO countries about what is an acceptable outcome in Ukraine? No, I actually think that Putin was counting for us to divide, to split, to be disagreeing internally in NATO and, and wider. But what happened was the opposite. And I, I think that is really what is confirmed at the summit uh, today, that we are more united than ever. Because the behavior of Putin and Russia is it's so extreme, uh, attack on all of the fundamental rules and values that we all share. So, so it's galvanizing our, our unity. And also, when we discuss from NATO and partner countries to send more weapons, more heavy weapons to, to Ukraine, uh, things like that, and we know that putting sanctions, providing weapons, having also an accountability track of all of the Russian military atrocities that they're doing in Ukraine, all of that together is putting a lot of pressure uh, on Russia. So I think we are united to an extent that I... Uh, hope for, but but maybe not um, expected because uh, there have been different attitudes to Russia. If you go back, uh, for example, Denmark, my government has been very, very critical towards Nord Stream 2, to say the least, to be more dependent on, on Russian energy, in particular gas. Uh, we thought it was a mistake, uh, and I think most people in Europe, Europe realize it was a big mistake a big mistake to be so dependent on Russian energy. And just one final, final question. For you personally, how big a relief is it to come to a NATO summit and know that you are not going to have to explain to the President of the United States that you're not going to sell him Greenland? <laughs> well, I think we have a very strong, aligned uh, partner in the US now. And uh, they, they are also fighting for the same values. So I'm very encouraged by the transatlantic unity both with the US and, and also with Canada. I think we, 
we have seen more unity than in my almost in my lifetime over uh, over this situation we have in Europe, and um, that gives me hope for the future. So the only good thing takeaway is the unity on the back of a tragical, violent attack from Putin and Russia on everything we stand for. And that was Jeppe Kofud, uh, Denmark's foreign minister, in conversation with Andrew Muller. And don't forget, Andrew will be here at midday today with a special edition of the Foreign Desk, uh, looking back at his time in Madrid at the NATO summit. This is Monocle on Saturday, and still with me is Terry Stiastini. And sort of picking up off the back of that, really, Terry, uh, we're looking at Le Figaro, which has this absolutely fascinating piece about the conversations between... Putin and Macron. Tell us more. Well, yes, we were just hearing there about, you know, all the preparations that go into a summit, how people are trying to deal uh, with Putin. And obviously, one of the things that's been really controversial is the number of uh, phone calls and so forth that, that Macron and Putin have had over over the last few months. And according to uh, this article in the figure, it says there have been um, at least 20 calls since February and describes quite a lot, obviously, you know, from from the French side, we're not hearing, you know, the, we're not going to, not very likely to hear the side of the of the behind the scenes um, scenario, uh, but saying that these calls never lasted less than an hour. They're described as a core a core, so sort of body to body, which is well, apparently it's like a term in fencing or you know describes people going sort of hand to hand combat, if you like. Um, and it said, but they're described as being. Often, often exhausting and and rarely productive. But these these calls seemed and they seem to involve you know the way Macron sees it at least and other people who come onto this disagree is that you know he's got to be a person that gives tells Putin something that he's not hearing from anywhere else that you know his advisors don't want to tell him. Try you know criticizing the mercenaries, criticizing saying you know that he's breaking international law, telling him all these things uh, that he's doing. And we've heard hear a little bit about how Putin responds to this, which is with a lot of bravado, you know, saying that Zelensky's in a bunker and I'm going to come and, you know, sort of defeat him and, you know, sort of very full of bluster. But these calls are often going on, apparently. You know, Macron wants, you know, they would be in the early hours of the morning. So he was ringing at 1am French time, which was at 3am Moscow time. And so they, but they would obviously just talk and talk, but, but really not really getting anywhere. Um, and one of the interesting things in this article here is saying that, you know, a lot of the time they didn't actually have much of an effect because because Putin is so sort of dug in and so entrenched in his in his view and what he's going to do. But Macron seems to think that it's quite uh, important to to carry on being this this outside perspective and and telling him you know what what the West are thinking. Um, but looking at the response, obviously from other countries in sort of Central and Eastern Europe, the Polish. Prime Minister was quite absolutely bitter about this and said, well, look, you wouldn't have negotiated with Hitler. You know, you wouldn't have phoned up uh, Hitler or Stalin or, or Pol Pot and, you know, saying that this is, you know, this is this is tantamount to doing the same thing. I can see how very useful it must be, though, because who who else does speak to Putin in that way? Well, I think and also and presumably it's useful um, to get a sense of over time how Putin's mood is changing. You know, is it, uh, is he feeling sort of uh, downcast? Is he, you know, is he finding this difficult? You know, if I guess if you've built up a strange sort of a relationship like that, that you might then be able to to detect if things are changing. But one of the, the trouble is um, that since the end of May and the worst things we've got, these calls have have now stopped, and they've just saying, look, it's it's uh, it's not working anymore. And but France is quite 
defending, you know, is defending their position and still saying that you know, this is a possibility uh, that is there. But that's, and then obviously we saw, you know, Macron and the other European leaders going to visit Kiev and going to talk uh, to Zelensky, and you know, but they want to have this possible possible channel there but uh, it says you know the fact is that since macron's visit to kiev the french telephone has no longer run rung in the kremlin that's yeah a, a, a useful channel closed down uh terry we're going to return to the papers in a little while but first let's cross to our editor-in-chief andrew tuck who's been out walking his dog taking the hound for an evening perambulation I walked down Rugby Street and past the new outpost of Honey and Smoke. And sitting outside the restaurant was Maggie Owen, who runs a jewellery shop on the same road. She was with her son, Roland, an airline pilot, and William, an architect. Would I pause for a glass of wine? inquired Maggie. I most definitely would. During a pleasant waylaid hour, Maggie seemed to know by name and be greeted by an incredibly high percentage of the people passing by or coming out of the neighbouring deli laden with provisions for supper. She knew the judge, the art dealer, the literary agent, the young guns with the fashion store. It was a little shaming seeing as I have lived here almost as long as her. Rugby Street and the neighbouring road, Lambs Conduit Street, sit in Bloomsbury and have been hit like everywhere else by the pandemic. There are still empty shops, but because so many of the businesses are owner-managed, there's a palpable sense of community that's held everything together. And over the years, there have been street festivals, a pop-up cinema, and in-the-road productions of A Christmas Carol, with various locals cast to do their best Dickens vocal deliveries. But as the dog and I slipped off into the evening, I couldn't help thinking that just one person with the confidence to say hello be willing to get involved with what happens outside their front door can be what's really needed to make a place a community. Smart people, not smart cities programs. And that perhaps the person who can best do this is someone who owns a shop. It's why physical retail matters and why we should all feel a little guilty when the van arrives with an Amazon parcel. We had a summer drinks party at Midori House this week and thankfully the morning rain had cleared as guests gathered for rosé under the flapping bunting. Actually, flapping bunting could be a rather good nom de plume. Tyler and I did a short speech running everyone through what's ahead in the next few weeks. The launch of The Companion, a paperback book with 50 essays that aim to prod you towards living better. Our next newspaper, Mediterraneo, a new series of books that unpacks nations for both travellers and people wanting to put down roots. First up, Portugal. Fresh shows on Monocle 24, plus events in the US and Spain. It's an impressive lineup of projects that we hope will continue to reveal Monocle in new and exciting ways over the coming months. Although, worryingly, I did hear Tyler call this our quiet period. That man has stamina. Although, how about this for a compliment? I was chatting with Monocle 24's Emma Nelson at the party when a woman approached. Are you Andrew Tuck? she asked. I just want to say that I love hearing you on the radio, and especially when you talk about London. I suddenly felt a little taller. The demeanour of a French king began to inhabit my very being. But do you mind if I say one thing? Really, I should have halted our interaction here 
but I was feeling far too confident to stop her now. Your voice on the radio sounds young, but, well, you're not. And off she went. Emma and I looked at each other and decided that a return to the bar was needed. Can you tell people's ages by their voices? I don't know. I always found that uh, people had a, to- a different idea. I remember somebody once coming up to me and saying, oh, you're not as tall as I thought you were on the radio. It's <laughs> odd, I was like, it? oh, I'd like to be. I like to sound tall. That yeah. would be good. I think I, I mean, I, I know I sound better than I look. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? No. <laughs> uh, what, what is it? They say a good face for radio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, let's talk about Tory sleaze because we can't really avoid it any longer. I'm, af- I'm afraid we can't. No, I mean, look, again, all, this is another day of dreadful headlines and front pages uh, for the government. You know, obviously they would have liked us to be talking about things like the NATO summit, which obviously we have. But, uh, you know, so, for instance, uh, the Times headline here, sex pest Tory faces fresh claim by activist. And we will explain exactly who this is. And then uh, this Chris Pincher in The Guardian, uh, who it was was the deputy chief whip uh, of the Conservative Party in Parliament, loses Tory whip over misconduct allegations. Uh, so new, new readers start here. The, the latest, This is um, a former Conservative deputy chief whip who had to resign. He, in his resignations letter, he basically said, oh, I had far too much to drink and embarrassed myself. He did not only have far too much to drink and embarrass himself, but he was in uh, the Carlton Club in London. He is accused of having groped two men. And this is something he has had to resign for before. So in 2017, he was also um, accused of of groping men. And now fresh uh, allegations have come forward. Um, uh, fresh, fresh allegations have been made about his behaviour um, by other young Conservative activists. Um, and, you know, they are they are denied by Mr Pincher's lawyers, but the activist said that um, Pincher had put his hand on his knee and told him he would go far in the party at an event held during the Conservative Party conference in October. Um, so, yes, people seem to have had lots of concerns um, about his behaviour in the past. Uh, he has been accused of, um, you know, often telling people that their career would go well if they went along um, with with his behaviour, uh, which, you know, is obviously serious when he was appointed to be chief whips, or deputy chief whips, someone who is in charge of party discipline, someone that MPs are supposed to go to if they had a problem. Uh, so he You're was brought in, in yeah, by Johnson brought, to brought do this Brought in by job. Boris Johnson and brought in, well, you know, the argument is, or the claims are, that brought in despite Downing Street knowing about this behaviour and despite having to look into, have the propriety and ethics people look into whether he was a suitable person um, to appoint. And again, this just raises many questions, um, not only about the behaviour of MPs. Um, you know, we've had a series of, of scandals like this. This is apparently the sixth scandal involving alleged sexual misconduct of an MP under Boris Johnson's government. But the government has this repeated pattern of saying, you know, OK, well, so he, he resigned as Deputy Chief Whip. Um, we'll draw they, a line. We'll draw a line. You know, we'll, he's, he's resigned. He's apologised. You know, but then within, I think, about 12 hours, having to reverse, change their position and say, OK, we'll remove the Conservative Whip from him, which means he doesn't have to sort of belong to the Conservative uh, group in Parliament, if you like. And, you know, they, they must have known 
that they would have to do that, that there would have to be an investigation, that they, he, they would have to be more of a punishment than just resigning. But for the first few hours, they tried to hold this line. And, you know, they have had enough of these <laughs> incidents yeah. now that they ought to know, you know, act quickly. It just and keeps don't, Yeah, and yeah. I think uh, among other Conservative MPs, there is a lot of concern about, you know, that they're not dealing with these things head on. There have been letters from particularly women uh, Conservative MPs saying, you need to investigate this, you need to do something thing about this behaviour and, you know, you need to to crack down on it. Mm. Uh, and of course, what we can't overlook here is the fact that the, the media, particularly the Times, uh, was definitely trying to overlook the Prime Minister's behaviour. When he was Foreign Secretary, there are allegations that he was caught uh, with his then-girlfriend, uh, Carrie, performing a sexual act on him in his office. Uh, the, the, the story that was on the, Sun, on the Times very briefly was then removed. Uh, it comes out and is now in private eye that Gavin Williamson, who has since been hugely rewarded by positions in Parliament, was the person that interrupted the Prime Minister and his then-girlfriend during working hours on his sofa in the office uh, and uh, the, the, the story is that Williamson was rewarded for keeping his silence. The fact that this is not being reported is absolutely shocking. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those stories that's obviously, you know, given the nature of the story, it's really difficult for anybody to, to actually sort of confirm or you know, say any of these things on the record. But as you said, these, these stories are now out there and the more that people have tried, you know, it was a, uh, an interesting example of the kind of the Streisand effect. The story that disappeared was probably much more talked about than, than if the story had remained up in the newspaper. And at first people thought this was a sensitivity about the claim that Boris Johnson wanted to appoint his, his then-girlfriend, now-wife, to a lucrative job as chief of staff. That story had been around for a while. That story had been in the biography uh, of Carrie Simons. It had been in, in published diaries and so forth. But it seems to be the, the objective was more to you know the the compromising position as you say that they that they found themselves in, but but it's strange that this, these stories have now kind of taken on a, a life of their own. But the question is, you know, what happens now? We've had already had one vote of confidence in the prime minister, which he survived. The question is now: Are Conservative MPs, in particular, going to say, look, there are patterns of behaviour here that they are just not breaking out of, and perhaps there isn't really even a desire to to break out of it and to, to try and do things differently. And no matter how much we keep hearing from the government that they're, well, you know, we're having a new start, we've got over the parties during COVID's kind of uh, fiasco. But, you know, are they actually ever going to really do things differently? And I mean, it is extraordinary when you also look at, at, at all the corruption scandals, all, the, all the, the jobs for mates, the contracts going to, to people who are very much connected to the Tory party. And then you see members of that party standing by the man who is in charge of all of this. And you've got to think at what point do you look at yourselves and say, I am just as much a guilty party by 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 colluding with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. There seems to be a kind of different world. As I'm just looking at this, another story in The Guardian here, which is kind of a sidebar to the whole thing, but it's a, describing the Carlton Club where, where Chris Pincher was and where he was drunken and misbehaving. Um, and there's apparently an area in this club called known as Cad's Corner, uh, which <laughs> apparently, according to a historian of London Private Members Club, is a spot where male members of the club, and uh, there only are male members of the club, um, I believe, at this point, could stand 
can to stare up the skirts of female guests walking up and down the stairs. And they describes this club as a, you know, it's famously a conservative sort of, you know, for conservative-minded people. Um, but, you know, in this in this little world, in this little bubble where people um, go go to kind of gather together, and it said, the surprise for many who have attended events at the Carlton is that someone broke the omerta around events within its walls and reported Pincher's alleged behaviour to his bosses rather than simply covering up what was alleged to have taken place. And it says, you know, within this club there's an alternative reality that can that can take hold and maybe it's a question as you say of a kind of a slightly alternative reality that um MPs and and other people in in politics you know don't realize until they go out and have to face elections by elections and so forth that you know the the reality is not quite the same mm. and a great day though for a nominative determinism <laughs> well yes yeah <laughs> uh, terry thank you very much indeed for coming in uh, that's all for this edition of monocle on saturday thanks to terry stiasny to our studio engineer nora hall uh, and to our supervising producer reese james i'm georgina godwin and monocle on saturday returns at the same time next week thanks for listening 